Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is Seamless MD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Lyle Berkowitz. Dr. Berkowitz is a physician, health system executive, and successful Hi. digital health entrepreneur. He helped lead innovation and IT at Northwestern Medicine for 20 years, was founder and chairman of Health Finch, and was CMO slash EVP at MD Live. Today, Dr. Berkowitz is a board member of OneView Healthcare, editor-in-chief of Telehealth and Medicine Today, and a CEO of KeyCare. Dr. Berkowitz, Lyle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, it's absolutely fantastic having you on the show. You have one of the most impressive track records that I've seen. And from what I can tell, I believe you've set your sights on engineering and medicine right from the beginning. But I'm really curious, where did that drive come from? Uh, you know... I think some of it's inherent. Yeah, I was a problem solver. Yeah, my I would call myself a problem solver. People would call me a troublemaker. But I always wanted to make things better. My mom uh, had a Yiddish term she would use. He wants to know from whence it came. And I was always pulling things apart and trying to figure it out. And yeah, I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, teenage time when computers were, were coming on, on the scene. I was intrigued. I loved playing with them. I loved the thought process because it worked out well. And then, you know, on top of that, just had, I think, mentors and others over the years who helped pull it out of me. But I think it was a combination of my my inherent hope to make things better, just coming at the time when we got to play around with computers. And then my dad being a doctor, all that came together of how can I focus on all this in healthcare. Makes a lot of sense. And so that kind of leads into maybe why you got into informatics was really technology was coming up and you wanted to piece things together. But I'm curious, what inspired the opportunity to first get into the the world of informatics? You know, I took in undergrad, while I was an engineering student, I, was, I also took some non-engineering courses. And one of my favorite was this honors course called informatics. And it was about the study of information. It was not about healthcare, medical yeah. informatics, or technology, because the essence of informatics is really about information. And I was fascinated by this from linguistics, understanding the difference between raw data to decision level information and knowledge. And then I needed money in college and I, I wound up computer programming and doing projects for doctors. And they sort of introduced me very early to using computers in healthcare. And this is, you know, mid eighties we're talking. And then yeah, as often happens, a doctor I was working with at college at Penn knew someone at the med school I was going to and said, you should meet this guy, Dr. L. Arthur Elstein. He was PhD. He was the head of the medical education and informatics department at University of Illinois. He was also the founder of the Society for Medical Decision-Making. I came with good word from college. He hired me as his research assistant for four years. I got to work with one of the smartest guys I've ever met, and he was a great mentor. And he then, as often happens, introduced me to a friend of his who was the head of medical informatics at Harvard's, well, Harvard School, ran something called the Decision System Group, one of the only NLM-funded informatics PhD places. So my fourth year in med school, I got to spend about three months in his lab, is what they call the sub-fellowship, learning from him. And I, I had immense, real, full understanding of medical informatics after being with this guy, Dr. Bob Greenis, who literally wrote with Dr. Shortliff the original sort of description of medical informatics in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's a great example, I think, Lau, of how so many of our experiences happen because 
one opportunity leads to the next. As long as you stay open-minded to it, that expertise just seems to compound. So that's a really, really great story. At Northwestern, you know, you were really busy as a physician, an informaticist, and an innovation leader, yet somehow you found the time to also found and lead a number of ventures in health tech all the way to, to successful exits. And today, and so back then, like this was not a popular thing to do in terms of tech and entrepreneurship among physicians. You were an outlier way back then. What kickstarted that? Because I had this experience, I knew that medical informatics was out there. And I maybe because I took one entrepreneurship course in undergrad, I had the sense of I wanted to try some things. Again, think of the time it was 1995. The gold rush was happening. There was so much going on with the internet. And I remember when I started at my group, and it was a smaller group, and I met my bosses at the time who were friends and mentors throughout my life. And I said, I want to be the director of technology for the group. And they're like, why would you want to do that? You're a doctor. That doesn't make any sense. Since 1995, remember, the internet was barely even started. And But they said, fine, you're not going to be that busy anyway. We'll let you do it. And they let me play around with it. And then, as often happens, you had a patient come in who turned out to be an internet CEO and asked and said, wow, you're a doctor who knows this stuff. And all of a sudden, I'm consulting with him. And one thing led to another, and I get all these little deals. At one point, I did have a hard conversation with my boss because I had a company, an EMR company, who said, we want you to you know, come and be our chief medical officer, but two days a week. So I had to go back and say, hey, I want to do this. And he's like, well, we don't want you to do that. We want you full-time here. And he said, what if I say no? I say, well, then I'll go full-time. I don't know if I could have, but he, he relented and it worked out well because I learned a lot and came back full-time to Northwestern later on. But I, I was always able to balance that. And Literally, it was a combination of me not knowing any better, me having a great wife who would take care of family and home and supported me in what I was doing. And so much of this, just like you said, Josh, just sort of being open to trying something new. One of my favorite quotes of all time is Louis Pasteur said, chance favors a prepared mind. And when I talk to my colleagues who are trying to do these new things, I'm like, just be open, see what happens and take the opportunity when it comes and, and you'll learn. Even if it doesn't work, you'll learn. You know, I think that reminds me of this concept. I'm not sure if you've heard of this in terms of like increasing your your surface area of luck. And I think the basic idea is that if you just put yourself in more positions to get lucky in general, like you're more likely to get lucky. I want to actually maybe double click on some of the physician entrepreneurship topics. So, you know, you've again found and led many of these digital health startups. And in today's world, more physicians than ever before are interested in making that same leap. Um, mm -hmm. You've probably learned a lot, a lot of mistakes along the way. What would be like the biggest piece of advice you would give to budding physician entrepreneurs? So I get this a lot. Like a lot of times they're like, hey, how can we do what you're doing? I'm like, it didn't happen overnight. And I started slow, right? I did a lot of this fractional work. And for really outside of a few years where I was sort of 40% in business, 60% clinical, I was mostly 100% at Northwestern clinical and physician executive, and a lot of the other stuff was nice and weekends um, and very fractional stuff. So I tell them, try it out. Dip your toe in. Don't worry about the money. Like, Go be an advisor to some startup, maybe even be a fractional chief medical officer. Get some equity. If they can pay you, great. But you don't have to dive in. Be a really great doctor first. Like That's at least five or 10 years before you just jump in to doing something else see what you can do within your own organization, and then build your way up. And sometimes they want to jump quicker, and I'm like, you're, may, might be makes more sense to work in a bigger organization. But I tell them a lot of doctors, 
they fail in business because it's not what we're used to and what we're trained. We're often the masters of the domain. You go into business and all of a sudden, you, you know, whether you're the smartest guy in the room or not, it doesn't matter. It's what height you're at in, in terms of the hierarchy. And a lot of doctors aren't used to that. So I think starting part-time, getting some experience helps them understand how much they want to, to move into that arena. And can I ask you the reverse question, which is um, there are a lot of technology entrepreneurs or operators who say, hey, I've been really good at other industries. Man, healthcare is a mess. I want to go to healthcare and fix it with technology. And we've seen a lot of mistakes made that way too. Yep. Just curious, any thoughts about like why that, when that doesn't work out and why that might happen? Yeah. So I, first of all, I tell those folks, I'm like, great, thank you, but be careful. Go first thing, go read the new thing, which is a book that came out in the late nineties talking about how a, the guy who had started Silicon graphics and Netscape, right? Jim, um, like as a name. He came into healthcare, same thing. I'm going to fix it. You guys don't know what you're doing. I understand technology. And it's basically, it was a book that sort of showed his descent into madness, right? As he's trying to, see, so eventually sort of came up with Helpion and WebMD, but it was difficult and tough. And it's a great book that explains how different healthcare is because we don't simply have a buyer and a seller. We've got a payer and a patient and a provider. And that three-way is much more complex than a two-way. I also jokingly talk about the complex game theory and the movie based on that and just how different healthcare is because it's not nearly as simple as other industries, but bless everyone who wants to come in and try it. We need to be disrupted and, sh and shook up in various ways as well. Yeah. In line with some of that thinking, Lyle, in 2007, you founded the Salozi Healthcare Innovation Program. That's at Northwestern's innovation arm with a goal to find, fund, and facilitate innovative technologies, processes, and new business models. What commonalities did you observe over all of this time vetting these new companies and new technologies? Any commonalities there? You know, the, the thing that I always said is I look for, I always ask three questions. I said, one, who uses your technology? Number two, who benefits from it clinically, financially, et cetera? And three, who pays for it? And how are those things aligned? You'd be shocked how many times folks would say, oh, well, you know, the doctor would use it, it'd be an extra minute per patient, and it would improve quality, would decrease ER visits, and oh, the doctor pays for it. I'm like, so how's that aligned? And like, these people outside of healthcare, these young 25-year-olds, oh, well, my aunt was stricken by this illness, and this would have helped her. I'm like, great, but you can't create something that is misaligned because you're not going to get adoption. And that's often what I would look for is entrepreneurs who truly understood the importance of user adoption because I always say there's, yeah, there's no quality, there's no improvement without use and there's no use without, you know, this, yeah, having really good utilization of something that is well aligned. And you'll hear that common thing, theme as we talk about over and over in healthcare. And it's shocking how many times people focus on doing something that yeah, seems good. It's like, great. If I gave a hundred dollars to everyone, they'd be happy, but who's going to pay for that? How does that make sense? And that's what I would look for and was really hard to find as well. The other thing I'd look for is how easy is this thing to scale, to incorporate into the EMR. I thought of the EMR as a platform upon which we build stuff. That's when we talk about health things. That was all based on that concept of platform and apps built on top of that. I think that's a really important insight, Lyle, this idea that unfortunately, just because something helps a patient or helps a provider doesn't mean there's a, a scalable market for it, which I think 
for folks trying to get into healthcare technology. It's something confusing at first because everyone thinks it helps people. Like, why won't people right. adopt it? And it's not that simple. I'm curious, given the importance of aligning um, all the stakeholders and the incentives correctly, if someone were trying to start a new idea to sell into like the provider health system space, like, would you potentially advocate for them to try and get a business owner first before even building something for, let's say, clinicians? Is that what you'd recommend now? Or is there ever a case where, you know what, you should still try to see if clinicians would be bought in before you go and find a buyer for it? Maybe both are possible. I don't know, but love to get any insight. Well, one of the things I always aspire to, if you think about human-centered design, is you know, focus on the problem before the solution. And a lot of times people are you know, they, they build something. They're like, this is great, but like, what problem are you solving? And so it's probably not a good idea necessarily to go to a doctor and just say, Hey, would you use this? If yeah, and start with like, what problems do you face doctor? You know, and you can ask specific questions around this area, but the more you understand the pain now as doctors, Josh, I mean, we're, we understood the pain. Like when I decided to do health things, I knew exactly how much time and energy we spent on refills. I didn't have to go and ask the doctor, which is why I love doctorpreneurs because they are the front line. They understand the essence. And that's one of the biggest problems in digital health, healthcare technology, it, it, it startups, et cetera, is how often, you know, we focus only on what we see or hear and not truly understand. And the example I often use is EMRs, electronic medical records, how were they developed? Because some technologists would go to a doctor and say, how do you want us to computerize your medical records? And they'd pick up a piece of paper and they say, make it look and feel like this, because this is what I'm used to. And that's a mistake. Now you're not using full design thinking. You're simply listening to what they say and they mean well, but you got to observe them, watch them. How do they use that paper? What do they actually have to do? What do they have to document? And if you can understand what they do, what they see, what they feel, how they act, you're going to be able to create a better solution. And, the, and that's one of the flaws, I think, in a lot of the early digital health is the lack of design thinkers and the use of just good old computer technology guys trying to replicate a paper-based model, which has never worked in any industry to any significant degree. There's never been super well adopted. I look at the gaming industry and like what they did, it's like when you play a game online, it's not a paper, it's not a computer version of paper. It is this amazing three-dimensional world what if the gaming designers had created EMRs? How much more fun would that be for all of us to actually take care of patients? Fantastic point. Lyle, I'm curious to get your take. In the past, you've stated why you believe democratizing healthcare is killing us. And in that particular talk you gave, you drew on two fictitious examples, a 22-year-old with a sinus issue and then an 82-year-old with dementia. And you were illustrating how they both get 15 minutes with the physician with telemedicines. Can you unpack this even for us? What do you mean by democratizing healthcare is killing us? Yeah, I, I think I said we've over-democratized healthcare. And by then, sometimes you got to say things get people's attention, right? But the idea is not everyone should have a 15-minute office visit with a doctor. From that perspective, people are like, oh, everyone deserves the same amount of time and attention. No, they don't. Um, that's silly. To you know, you've got limited, uh, you've got an amazingly smart specialist, and you have limited time. And to say that twenty-two-year-old with sinus infection and an eighty-two-year-old with complex medical history deserve the same fifteen-minute slot, I mean, that's not a good use of resources. That twenty-two-year-old, I, I think, can be handled, you know, in, in as automated and delegated a fashion as possible. So I'd rather spend twenty-eight minutes with that really complex patient and one or two minutes on the simple one. And 
And that's that sort of how I use that term over-democratized. And we have to start thinking of getting everyone the appropriate and right amount of care rather than just fitting everyone into the same time slots that we have. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. How do we fix that? Is that, is that more just a cultural thing where we tell people, hey, it's okay if you spend two minutes on the low-risk thing and 28 minutes on the more complicated thing? Is there a reimbursement aspect to this that we have to fix? Like, how do we fix that? Yeah, a couple of ways, right? There are cultural changes and compensation changes that come to mind exactly as you said. But the truth is, it sort of happens, right? If we're in a clinic, you know, we're going to spend less time with that that younger, healthier person and catch up and try and spend a little time. So it happens inherently. We know it, but we haven't taken it to any type of extreme. And I think we have to take it to an extreme. So imagine a world where you go, you know, we go to a primary care doctor and say, hey, doc, I'm going to increase your salary by 50%. You get decrease your patient load to 10 patients a day. How's that sound? Yeah. How's that burnout feel now? And they're going to be like, okay, well, they're going to say, what's the catch? You're going to say, well, I'm going to give you a team to manage these folks. And we're going to use technology, et cetera, to appropriately manage your panel size. And we're going to pay you based on your panel size and how many, and how big your team gets and how well you manage them. Not going to pay you on the E&M code and the RVUs that keep you on a treadmill. So for us to really succeed in this in that vision, we do need to think, starting with compensation redesign, the cultural stuff gets easier if you get the compensation redesign, but you got to get doctors who feel comfortable saying, I don't need to see every patient in the office anymore. And I am going to be comfortable training and overseeing a team. And it's not something we've done well. I think you've got the Kaisers of the world who are starting to do that well, but that is the arc that needs to happen. And there's lots of different components of that. And so we're, we're just on baby steps there. But all I'm preaching is what we've been saying for many have been saying for decades on population health, team-based care, and now technology. The issue is, can we start executing on that better? And do you think it's likely going to be the pay providers who make progress on this first, just because they can integrate the care delivery with the reimbursement? Or would there be other folks you think you might be able to move on this quicker? I think they, they have a clear leg up because their incentives are aligned. When you've got a pay provider where you know, they're at risk, they can pay their doctors differently and they can bonus differently, et cetera. However, there's no reason fee-for-service SARS can't do the same thing. Because if you think about it, uh, if I am able to do this with my doctor and incentivize them on panel size, we want the panel size and primary care groups to be as large as possible. Whether you're in a capitated value-based world and it's a panel size is worth more or it's simply downstream revenue and a fee for service. If I can typical panel size 2,500 per PCB, we can double that. Uh, any health system out there is going to be happy to do that. But to do that, it's going to be those cultural and compensation changes, workforce changes, team-based care, technology, all of that will have to come together. But there's no reason a, a fee for service scenario wouldn't be as excited, if not more so, because the bigger the funnel, right, the more the downstream revenue. That's why they invest in primary care in the first place. And yeah, as you heard me say, I mean, I don't think the answer is gain more doctors. They just aren't out there. The answer's got to be how do you extend yeah, and leverage the doctors that you have in a way that doesn't burn them out. That's going to be the trick. Makes total sense. So Lyle, in addition to compensation redesign and cultural shifts, you recently launched your latest paradigm shifting venture, KeyCare. And- could you tell us what is key care and what was the light bulb moment for its genesis? Yeah. So 
KeyCare is the first virtual care solution that's based on Epic. So basically, we took a couple of things and mashed them up, right? We took this idea of how do we support a health system by giving them virtual care workforce to support particularly what I often call the triple R threat that's drowning their doctors, routine, repeatable, rules-based care. And how do we make this workforce as efficient as possible by using technology, virtual care, et cetera. And by putting it all onto our Epic platform, because we now have an instance of Epic, we're able to use interoperability functionality that allows our providers to more easily manage anyone, particularly who's using an Epic system themselves, because the patient can have an appointment that can span across both instances, all the data is shared, et cetera. The light bulb moment, the reason why this all came, like so much of innovation we're seeing right now is COVID-born. The beginning of COVID, you went from health systems who didn't do a lot of telehealth to boom, they're doing 80 plus percent of their visits on telehealth. They recognize, the doctors recognize, okay, we can do this. The patients were like, this is great. Why wasn't I doing this before? Insurance companies started paying for it. So all the fundamentals were in place. But within a couple of months, six plus months, all of a sudden everyone's getting back. And if you're an office-based doctor in a health system, you're optimized for office-based care. I think we saw the rise of hospitalists in the 90s. I'd suggest that now we're seeing the split of what we'll call officeologists, doctors who are absolutely optimized for the office, and virtualists, doctors who and providers who are optimized for virtual-based care. And if you're an officeologist, you don't want to do a bunch of virtual-based care. Um, you'll make more money, you'll be more comfortable, you'll be in your zone being in the office. And so now what's happened, we've set this up. So health systems, patients have increased demand. They want more virtual care. And it's getting paid for by insurance in many cases or other avenues. Meanwhile, you've got the supply of doctors who want to do virtual care in the health system going down. So we've seen a decrease in virtual care being done in health systems, but not because demand has gone down, but simply because supply is down. So I am working on creating more supply so health systems can help manage this these patients. Because if health systems don't, I'm a health system guy, they're going to go elsewhere. They're going to go to the Amazons and the third parties, et cetera. And once they start leaking out there, they may do more and more of the care away from the health system. And that worries me because, yeah, while that might be fine for a limited, small issue, once you have a major issue, you really want that health system to know all aspects about you, for them to take the best care of you from head to toe, from birth to death, the more they know about you, the better. And I want the health systems to be able to offer a lot of the easy, lightweight stuff that patients are able to get on the internet, but do so in a more trusted manner, in a more collaborative manner with the, with the doctors and the health system. And I think that's just going to be better care for patients. And it speaks to the idea that what if we let the health systems focus, really focus on the really complex stuff that they're so great at, let us come in and partner with them on the lightweight stuff that third parties are doing better than them right now. But if we can do it in true con you know, collaboration with them, we bring the best of all worlds to all their patients. And Lyle, just so that I fully understand these, like, are, do you imagine like they're going to be like full-time virtualists who work on the key care network, or are they potentially like part-time virtualists with you, but they're doing other stuff maybe? Like, what are you expecting with those clinicians? Yeah, I imagine it's going to be a combination. You know, there are more and more full-time virtualists, both primary care, urgent care, as well as specialty care, behavioral health, et cetera. 
And then there are those who also might have an office-based um, scenario where they just do X number of hours a week. We are working with virtual care medical groups who have done the initial credentialing, vetting, training, et cetera, of these folks. We further train them on our Epic instance, make them available, and depending on the situation, they might be available for specific hours that the health system is designated. They might be available just on demand. You know, for urgent care, it's usually on demand. For other scenarios, primary care, behavioral health, specialty care, most of that is scheduled hours. And so we see working with a combination of types of virtualists within those uh, venues, Josh, that would, but more and more, I think we're seeing physicians, providers, by the way, doctors, NPs, nurses, coaches, lactation specialists, dietitians, et cetera, more and more who really appreciate the ability to be able to provide this virtual care, vice versa, patients who appreciate them being there for them. And it sounds like a big advantage of the key care approach in the network is that when a patient gets seen on your network by a virtual care um, clinician, they still have access to all that, you know, historical patient information. Whereas if they went to some other direct-to-consumer platform, for example, they often there's often no context about that patient. Okay. So an important context is missing from that encounter. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's certainly one of our highlights, right? Though, so our providers are able to see all the past data. So it means a couple things. One, it means the patient doesn't have to repeat all that stuff, all their data, allergies, meds, problems, their past medical history, their results, everything's available. And that means our providers can make a more informed decision about the healthcare. Um, vice versa, once they sign the note, it goes back into the originating health systems record so that they have access to it as well as they want to make decisions in the future. And on top of all that, by having that data outside of urgent care, it allows us to more easily handle primary care, post-op type of follow-up and, and, and any type of specialties, is having that data gets incredibly important over time. Ensuring the data is important, being able to make sure the patient feels that it's all connected is both, I think, clinically quality, it's important, but also it's a feeling of commonality and consistency that makes them trust and feel better about getting their healthcare taken by a partner with the health system. Makes sense. I got to ask, Lyle, given that your background was in primary care to begin, was that what was that the first use case that came to mind for key care? So urgent care really is our first use case. 24 by 7, 50 state urgent care. Because I spent a couple of years at MD Live and saw that. We did it, of course, at Northwestern as well. And it's simply the greatest need of most health systems that they, they can't meet themselves. <laughs> but to me, as a primary care doctor, it is, I think, the cornerstone of how we help a health system transform into truly being a population health organization, is we need to get primary care under control. That is urgent care, preventive care, chronic care. Those are the three legs of the primary care stool. And as you get that under control, everything else starts to fall into place, how you specialists, et cetera. So that's why I'm so enthused about <laughs> um, moving more and more into primary care support over the coming year. And I love, of course, behavioral health as well. That's such a great need out there. And being able to provide it online, I think, is has become more the standard than office-based care for behavioral health these days as well. So I'm going to ask you a question, and it's totally fine if you pump your own tires when you answer this question, because you might have to answer it accurately. When I think about eCare, it's such a, a, an amazing solution, but a very complicated industry in healthcare where it's so trust-based and relationship-based. Could anyone else have started the 
company? Because I can only imagine that if you're someone coming from the outside where you don't have, you know, past relationships with, you know, vendors like Epic or having visionary digital and clinical leaders in your network to pitch this idea to and be your initial kind of reference partners. Like, could anyone else really have done this besides you? It <laughs> uh, might, might be better to have others answer, but I, I will say the following. Um, th this might be the only company I should be allowed to, to, to be the head of, right? I mean, it takes advantage of my long depth in health systems, including in the informatics and innovation side, my experience at a national telehealth vendor, um, my deep experience and relationships with Epic, both helping roll it out at Northwestern, as well as with Health Finch, we were one of the first three apps on the Epic app workshop, and my overall experience in entrepreneurship. Um, those all came into play for making this happen. And I think a lot of people you know, look at Epic and say, oh, we can't work with them, et cetera. They've been great partners. Uh, they're really well aligned on this. And, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that they felt comfortable with making us really the first startup and the only virtual care company to have this type of relationship with them and to be part of the Epic community. So that's has given us the ability to, to start, but we have a lot of execution work and I have hired a lot of amazing people, like a lot of our staff come you know, from, they've been at Epic for years in the past, have succeeded elsewhere, folks who've been in the health systems and startups and telehealth. The, you know, the only way this ever works is for me to hire great people. And so that's my number one and two job, right? You know, or three jobs, you know, setting the vision, hiring great people, raising enough money, and then, and then yeah, executing on all of it to make it work just in the early stages of it. Yeah. Super exciting. That's awesome. Yeah, it is absolutely exciting. The last question that I had about T-Care, assuming that your thesis plays out, what is the overall vision for how healthcare could transform? So, yeah, in many ways, I look at us less as a telehealth or virtual care company and, and more of a population health enablement company. Yeah, again, our goal is to help health systems transform in, in the ways we've discussed in a bit. And that is, how do we, you know, work with health systems, bring them this tech-enabled virtual care workforce. And I'll often talk about my sad philosophy to make doctors happy and patients healthy. It's, a, it's the same theme I've used throughout most of my career and almost all my startups. And that is how do we simplify, automate, and delegate those routine, repeatable rules-based activities? Because again, going back to my roots as an engineer, as a problem solver, it drives me crazy that we have doctors doing stuff that can be easily automated or delegated to others and that we don't fully take advantage of technology that way. And that well, I often talk about how we don't have a shortage of physicians, we have a shortage of using them efficiently. And the idea here is every other industry has figured this out better than us. Commerce, right? Amazon and the travel industry, they all figured out you can do a lot of technology work to automate, provide self-service, delegate to team-based care. Even within healthcare, you have instances where, think about last time you went to a dentist or your eye doctor. They've got a whole bunch of technology and team that take care of you, and so you just see them for a short instance, and they're able to really leverage themselves. Why don't we do that more, particularly in primary care and cognitive specialties? And that's our ultimate goal, is that a health system can tell their doctors we are going to, again, increase your salary, decrease your load. We're going to make you happy again. We're going to, and we're going to take advantage of you being at the top of your license. But to do this, we've got to embrace you know, more technology and more, and mainly more team-based care. 
And our goal is to be their trusted partner in doing that and get really good at doing the what we'll call that low-value routine commoditized stuff really efficiently, really high quality. Let us focus on that because health system, I need to focus on focusing on what you in your physical spaces do so well, which is take care of the most complex stuff. Heart attacks, cancer, broken bones, complex patients. Like That's where I want you focusing. When I think of an executive or physician at a health system focusing on how to take care of a sinus infection at seven o'clock at night, I'm like, huge wasted opportunity. I want those people focusing on how to take care of that 84-year-old who, you know, is breaking down and if they could get that extra attention and that special care you provide, you know, is going to live another day and do so in a healthy manner. So many great things they can focus on. Let us take over some of the smaller stuff. That's my ultimate goal is to, why young, one, one question asked early on was how did I start all this? I read a book at some point when I was 18, 19 years old. They just said, pick a goal in life that you'll never really achieve. And then you'll always be happy going after it. Because once you achieve a goal, you sometimes lose the happiness. And I said, I want to solve healthcare. And I know I'll never fix it all, but by God, I'm, I'm going to do whatever I can to be a part of the puzzle. Because as we said earlier, there are lots of things that have to be solved. I want to execute on that one part that says, if we can use a tech-enabled virtual care workforce to support our health systems, let them focus on the most important things. Let us take care of the easier stuff. You know, I'll be able to walk away really happy. That's super exciting. Yeah. Sad and fat, right? That's, that's amazing. That's so, awesome. Yeah, the, fa- the fact the- is, is yeah, financial incentives are online, um, AI automation, teamwork, telehealth. I got it. I'm, I'm a doctor. We love our acronyms. <laughs> so, uh, so if I could make it an acronym, I will. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Amazing. Well, Lyle, being mindful of your time, let's flip over to what we call the fast five lightning round. <clears throat> okay. Just five questions to get to know you better. The first question we have, what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? So that's easy. Everyone knows me. I love The Alchemist. Paulo Coelho. It's one of my favorite books to give people, tell them, read it again. Like it's hey, not, even if you read it before, when you were going through a change in life, it's one of the most, you know, optimistic or positive intent type books. Think whatever, yeah, blank happens to you. You know, it's your attitude that matters um, and focus on that. I love that. Question two, who is a person either dead or alive who you'd love to meet? Can I get two? Sure. Well, Leonardo da Vinci, always, always like that guy. What the heck? What was he doing? I don't know. Um, But uh, I would love to understand where his mind was. But on the medical side, William Halstead, this is also, I'm going to throw another book. Um, There's a book I read called Genius on the Edge, Bizarre Double Life of of Dr. William uh, Stuart Halstead. Um, for those doctors out there who are surgeons, you all know them. He was the guy who like basically originated surgery. This book is all about how he was so effing innovative. It was unbelievable. He created like the first radical mastectomy, you know, first like gallbladder surgery, like on his mom in their kitchen. Um, he created the concept of a surgical residency. He was one of the four horsemen at oh. Hopkins and he had this an amazing, weird life, but he was truly a doctor innovator. And, and someone I'd, I'd love to uh, to have met, and, but that book's a good way to meet him. That's awesome. Question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Read people's minds. Uh, <laughs> seems much more useful. Yeah. Okay, follow up to that. What if you couldn't turn that power off? Uh, well, that, then I'd have to get one of those tin hats or something. <laughs> yeah. I'd figure it out. That'd be yeah, my that's goal. Right. You'll life. innovate your way out of that. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? Uh, our poorly aligned incentives and what we talk about, just absolutely <laughs> insane. 
how come something that helps someone isn't getting paid for? Drives me nuts. It would drive anyone nuts. Yeah, absolutely. And last question that we have, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment in history, what would it be and why? Landing on the moon. Um, like, well, how did they do that? Oh my God. I'd love to sort of see that whole arc. Like, you know, when they decided to do it and actually did it, that was an incredible feat with so low technology and that sort of, you know, how much, yeah, how much it took to, to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Crazy. I think this is the first time Ali ever had someone have the same answer as someone else. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All the same answers? No, yeah, yeah. All, every <laughs> single one. Just the moon landing. Yeah. <laughs> the moon landing. No, that's incredible. That's great. Well, Amazing. Lyle, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. We really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing some of your wisdom with our audience today. For folks listening, you can find Lyle on Twitter at Dr. Lyle MD. And that's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, visit www.seamless.md. Lyle, Dr. Berkowitz, again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, guys. That was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thanks so much.